at the beginning, everything was just wholesale stuff. The State Farm mm. and all that. That was wholesale vaccination. And now that's played out. I mean, mm-hmm. they're doing 500 doses a day at the most at those big giant places. That's played out. It's retail stuff now. It's getting weekends. Like the county set up one in the swap meet. Meet people where they are. Yeah. I think mentally people are still dealing with what happened last year. I mean, we're all looking at potential mortality numbers being much higher than we thought they were. And I think that that's going to affect our psyche. And I think a corollary of that that's coming in the next months is a lot of businesses are now struggling with how do they manage the future now? I think a lot of people are trying to decide all that stuff. I hope people don't forget. We as humans, I think, have short memories and we want to do what we want to do. Even if you're fully vaccinated, life is not the way it used to be yet because there are still our cases and there still are people dying, much less, and we're moving in the right direction, but this isn't over yet. So in three months, I hope we can say it's almost over, but it's not over yet. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and it is time for our end of May COVID-19 roundtable. As you heard at the top of the episode from Dr. Kara Guerin, this pandemic certainly isn't over yet, but sharper edges of uncertainty are finally starting to round off somewhat, which gives us more space to think, to process what we've been going through, and to learn, or at least identify what we want to learn more about. The focus now is on achieving herd immunity, drawing upon data and lessons, and building a better future. This is our first episode since the CDC changed masking requirements, allowing vaccinated Americans to generally put their masks aside while putting the rest of us on the honor system to stay masked if not vaccinated. Some are happy, some are frustrated, others annoyed. Polling indicates that Americans don't trust each other to do the right thing. Daily life is still a negotiation of will versus rules, of grace versus anger, and of individual rights versus public space. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about retail vaccine strategy, return on sacrifice analysis, the multiple aspects of the school's conundrum, and much, much more as of May 24, 2021. Joining us today, as always, so glad to have you, Dr. Kara Guerin from Valleywise Health. How are you? Doing well. Thank you very much. Equally thankful. And glad to have Dr. Joshua LeBaire from the ASU Biodesign Institute. How are you, sir? I am good. And always grateful, overwhelmed sometimes, by Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, except I'm really tired from all my yard work I just finished. Because <laughs> we have quarterly pickup coming, and it's like you have to cram three months worth of yard work into two days. First the threat of a pandemic, now the threat of bulk pickup. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get started. Josh, I'm going to throw the spoiler alert. All right. It seems like we're at an all-time low in cases. We're certainly low. Nationwide, we're back in mid-June of 2020, so that's great. In Arizona, we're still sporting a few hundred cases a day. I would love to see that number continue to drift down, but certainly it's way better than it has been. That's for sure. Kara, how's it feel in person? In person, it feels better, but still there. It waxes and wanes. But last week, I diagnosed quite a few of COVID cases. No one was admitted. Uh, They were all discharged home, which is different than what it was before. 
Will, as you look at all the guidance, the changes on a daily and weekly basis, how does it feel? It's just I'm so disappointed that we're down to like 15,000 shots a day, 20 at the most. And you can remember, Josh, your team's biodesign model was built on an assumption that we could achieve 50,000 a day, and we're grossly underperforming that, even with adding the adolescents. So if we could have just maintained 50,000 per day for a while, that would have really helped. Yeah, yeah. Although do keep in mind that the team also did a model for no further vaccinations after April 28th. They just stopped all vaccination. And even that showed no surges over the summer. But certainly, I think we would all love to see 50,000 a day because there the numbers drifted down to minuscule numbers. So here's the thing. Out in the world in daily life, it looks like it's completely over. You know, I don't know if I would say that yet. It was interesting to me because for the first time, I actually walked into a store without a mask on because I'm fully vaccinated and the signs were all gone. And yet there were plenty of people in there still wearing masks. In fact, I even put mine back up. I will continue to wear masks. I mean, I appreciate the CDC's guidance and I understand the reasons for it. And I understand that the idea is to get more people vaccinated, like to give reasons for people to get vaccinated. But I'm just not there yet. Two reasons for me. One is my children, because I can't justify to my children saying, I'd like you to wear a mask. And I'm not going to. So I think simply to show a good example to my six-year-old and saying, I know you don't like wearing a mask, but you need to. And the second thing is, to be honest, I don't trust people, right? Like there's no way to know who's vaccinated, unvaccinated. In my line of work, I see people who are tested positive for COVID get on airplanes. and I see them not quarantine and I cannot ready to go out. And I know my chances of getting COVID are small, but I'm not ready to go out and trust the world yet. I would expect, Kara, that emergency rooms will never change the policy of at least wearing a surgical mask. No, we frequently talk about that. Part of the CDC guidance is that in healthcare environments, you continue to wear a mask. And I frequently think, how could you not ever? I did before COVID when I was pregnant and there was a lot of flu and I got a lot of strange looks for it. But I now I still don't understand how they're not going to. Having said that, a lot of patients don't wear their masks properly, you know, like some of the examples we've seen in the emergency department, people are constantly pulling it down. And when they talk to me, they pull it down. I'm like, no, no, please pull that back up. (laughs) (laughs) Chin guard. Yes, absolutely. It's a constant battle. And I just sometimes I'm going to be like, you don't know that down the hall, there's a patient with COVID. We keep the door closed, but it's not just for everyone else's protection. It's also for yours. So I'm fully vaccinated. But I can't bring myself to not wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. So I have a creative solution. I graduated back to my old gator. I used to have a gator, and then they said gators weren't good enough. So I put it away, and now I brought my gator back. I haven't brought my bandana back yet. So now you just Mm. look like a thief. (laughs) (laughs) So I just feel like I can't go to the grocery store without one. It's like you said, Josh, I don't want to get a side eye. But I know I'm not a risk to anybody because I know I had two good shots. And the CDC guidance was based on science. It was based on nearly a dozen papers. There's solid evidence to show that people who've been vaccinated not only are at extraordinarily low risk themselves, but they're at very low risk of transmitting it to other people. That's where that guidance came from. It's just a little bit unfortunate that up until they released that guidance, they were saying kind of the opposite. And so it came out 
very sudden. If they had been sort of building towards it, it would have felt a lot easier for everybody. I agree. I mean, the news said that there were comedians making fun of the CDC and it seemed like a lot of social pressure. And the next thing you know, they came up with this guidance. <laughs> yeah. I kind of felt like it was came out of nowhere. And I agree that it is based in science, but you're exactly right. They could have given us a few warning shots there. Right. I mean, I think the, you know, p- part of the argument is that for those people who are vaccinated, you've got already 95% efficacy based on the vaccine, plus the case counts are very low. So the chance that you're going to not only encounter somebody who has COVID, plus that your vaccine will fail is so low that that's where that advice came from. Tell that to the New York Yankees. (laughs) That's a great point. Let's talk well, about that. Well, didn't now yeah. Josh, what that was a PCR that they ran a whole bunch of cycles. That's what I read. Explain that to the yeah, average yeah, listener. So the Yankees in in some ways it's sort of the exception that proves the rule, isn't it? I mean, it basically almost all of them had asymptomatic infections with low viral counts, very low viral counts. It's the sign that yeah, even in in that kind of high interaction environment that they have with the vaccines in place and not even the strongest vaccine of all the vaccines, they were really not able to mount any serious infections. So it kind of says these vaccines work pretty well. Yeah. It says that Johnson and Johnson works well, but probably not as good as the others and that no one got sick. No one got super sick. There were seven, they were asymptomatic and two that had mild symptoms. So without the vaccine, who knows who would have ended up in the hospital. What's interesting is they get tested on a regular basis. So that's how we know that they had it. And they are together all the time, indoors, no social distancing. Who knows about the ventilation situation is different than the average person. Right. Don't you imagine, though, that people reading the headlines didn't even catch all those nuances? What they saw was half the New York Yankees tested positive for COVID. Yes. Unfortunately, that is true. Like so many other things, it's all in the details and the nuance, unfortunately. So what do we have to talk about, Will, related to breakthrough infections that get through the vaccine? What does the data say? Well, almost all vaccines have breakthrough cases. Like take chickenpox. We had a chickenpox when I was in the state health director job. We had No, when I was a deputy, we had a chickenpox varicella vaccine. That's what it's called to the list. And every year we would have parents who vaccinated their kids. And then those kids would come down with chickenpox. That's called a breakthrough case. But... They were always mild that I remember. I can't remember a serious one. And this is no different. This is a really effective vaccine. It works well. All three of them work really well. Two of them superlatively well, if that's the right conjugation. Like with the Yankees. And it's mild cases. And it's very extremely protective of keeping you from getting the kinds of symptoms that would put you in the hospital or worse. Like any vaccine, even these have some breakthrough cases and even uh, some of them even lead to serious infection. But if you do the math, the rate at which serious infection occurs in people who are vaccinated is in the lightning strikes range. It's less than one in a million. That's that's how rare it is. You got to wonder if those individuals have a hole in the immune system somewhere or some other condition that allows them to get a serious infection despite vaccination. But it is really rare. I'm going to talk about something that's probably taboo to talk about, which I have a theory. I have no data to support, but that I think some of these breakthrough cases could have been as a result 
of vaccines that weren't held at the right time and temperature. When you're giving out however many million vaccines, whatever it's been, Moderna and Pfizer have really restrictive and hard to maintain cold chains and holding Mm -hmm. requirements. And humans make mistakes. They leave vials out too long. Someone might not catch that. I think some might be vaccines that broke cold chain. That's certainly possible. Also, if you look at the papers that have talked about breakthrough cases like the one out of Israel, one of the comments they make is they were counting fully vaccinated as one week post second dose. But some of the people who were getting these breakthrough cases were two weeks post second dose. So they were very close to the edge of when they would be fully immune. And so that may be another reason why some of these breakthroughs occur. I looked at some of the Arizona numbers and according to the number of people that they had, the breakthrough infections to number of people that got vaccinated was 0.05%. Right. Which is pretty amazing. Probably have a higher chance of walking outside and getting hit by a car. Yes. When we were having these conversations two months ago, three months ago, we weren't nearly as relaxed. There's an edge that's been taken off, but we're still not out of the woods, are we, Will? No. No, we're not out of the woods. And so what can we expect? Is it really, at this point, just the end game of we've got to get to herd immunity through vaccination combined with the number of people who have actually experienced COVID? Yeah, that's been the name of the game all along. There were mitigation measures we were urging our elected and appointed officials to take. Remember back in November, December, and January that they elected not to do, and that was to slow it down to give us a chance to get to the place where we had a few million people vaccinated and save some lives in the meantime. But those opportunities have come and gone to save those lives. For the last two months, it has been about vaccine efficiency and strategies to get vaccine out quickly. And now I think we're at the phase where it's try to make it as convenient as you possibly can for people in their 20s and 30s, reach out to difficult to reach communities and populations who have the kinds of jobs that make it next to impossible to take time off to get vaccinated. And then for the vaccine hesitant to do your best to get vaccine into doctor's offices. And has anyone seen any evidence that PSAs work? I don't know that these public service announcements are doing anything. The evidence shows that for people who are vaccine hesitant, that your healthcare provider, your nurse practitioner, that's compelling. And word of mouth is compelling. So mm-hmm. someone who is hesitant like you, who gets the vaccine and has a good experience and feels a sense of relief, that kind of word of mouth, like the way movies get popular. Movies yeah. get popular because people start talking about this movie being good. And so it's the word of mouth part of it and getting it to doctors who can then close the deal after the conversation. And I don't know how long that's going to take. Well, this goes back to framing in context, does it not? I mean, at this point, we don't know what the chain is of what people are hearing. What we have seen anecdotally is people saying things like the Moderna vaccine actually has many more side effects. Anecdotally, people are expressing that, man, I wish I hadn't gotten Moderna. And that gets passed around through the chain. And now people are getting picky about what vaccine they have. We do know that People who are already convinced that this was a bad idea point to those cases right away, and that spreads the other direction, right? There's plenty of information or even numbers to point out whatever you believe. There's the question as to whether the mRNA caused myocarditis in adolescence, but if you look at the baseline rate of myocarditis, it's probably all the same. But if you feel like you're going to justify that, 
Is anybody here happy with the quote unquote bump we got when 12 to 15 year olds got added in terms of vaccination rate by day? It was like a two day bump. It'll continue though. People are doing it. My daughter just got hers, but we couldn't get to it right away because we had to find places that had Pfizer and not the other. And so it took us a little while to hunt it, but it'll, it'll start to happen. Schools. And it's a busy time of season too. Schools and yeah, they're all finishing. They're graduating. Uh, exactly. Very, exactly. this is, this is kind of school chaos when everyone's kind of transitioning out of school, doing their summer activities. It's a thing where we got to get this Pfizer vaccine into pediatric offices because parents are going to do the checkups and stuff over the summer or the sports physical that's needed. And then they have to have the Pfizer vaccine, which means they've got to be able to order less than 1100 because that's too big a volume to move. But the county health departments, some of them at least, are breaking the box up. The pizza box. The pizza box up so that pediatricians can order the amount that they can use. And something happened this week that yes. FDA said you can yeah. hold the Pfizer vaccine in a refrigerator for a month. Yeah, I think that's that, right. I think it's a month. Up so, from five days. Up from five days to a month. That's a big deal. So that helps you with storage and the amount you can order as a pediatrician, but only a really big office could order a whole pizza box and move it in a month. It certainly seems like a huge move, though. Yeah, yes. It oh, it's good. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. So school is barely letting out, but every parent out there wants to know what school is going to look like in the fall. Anybody want to hazard a guess? I can tell you what I hope. <laughs> I hope that everyone still has a mask and that there's some social distancing. I don't really know what's going to happen. I also was hoping, though, that early fall, the Pfizer vaccine would be ready for younger children. But now Fauci, I think, said don't expect it till the end of 2021 or early 2022. Yeah, because the really? clinical yeah the clinical trials for the six months to 11-year-olds. Enrollment's harder in that group. It takes yeah. longer because parents... 18 and up, you can just sign up, but yep. this is harder and slower. And they're testing different doses. That's the other thing. The enrollment is some kids are getting different doses, so they find an optimal number of micrograms for right. each one. So uh, you're right. I think it's probably going to be over the winter break where the littler mm. kids will be able to get vaccinated for school. But hopefully middle school and up, high school could really honestly look Pretty normal, pretty, I think. Pretty normal. Which is its own kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we know any more about the people who are suffering what is euphemistically or not euphemistically called long COVID? It's a complex story, and it's really going to turn out to be a group of diseases, not a single disease, but it's much more common than we thought it was. I mean, obviously it's complicated because we have no simple diagnostics for it yet, but the estimates I've seen range between 20 and 80% of people. And it does not necessarily require that people have been in the hospital with their COVID. Plenty of people who never went to the hospital with their COVID are coming down with these symptoms. And sometimes it's not right after they're sick. Sometimes it hits them two months after they were sick. Fatigue is really common. Headache is common. Some people are getting respiratory symptoms. Some are getting this brain fog. It's going to turn out to be common. And when we talk about long COVID, we're talking about what range of time that we have seen so far. I know anecdotally, I've experienced people in my life who've been suffering from 
brain fog and depression for months. Yeah, I mean, we obviously don't know how long the long is because we do have some hint of it. If you look at the data from SARS-1, there were people that had symptoms up to 40 months. Wow. Yeah, yeah, for, SAR, for SARS-1. Because some of the same types of symptoms existed there in terms of fatigue, in terms of respiratory symptoms, in terms of some of the neurological and mental disorder stuff. It could go on for very long. We don't know, obviously, for SARS-CoV-2 yet, but it could be similar. Is there enough of a chemical relationship, if you will, just for folks who only know them by name? Is there enough of a relationship there between the two well, viruses? Well, they're very similar viruses for sure. Although what separated CoV-2 from CoV-1 is this asymptomatic thing. With SARS-CoV-1, with SARS, you could pretty much identify everybody who was ill because they all were ill. And so that's how they could isolate it so quickly. What caught us off guard with this virus was that people were spreading virus before they knew they were sick. And so it just took off like crazy for that reason, I think. Who knows if that affects the fraction of people that get long COVID? I don't know. But there are definitely people who are getting long COVID who had mild symptomology when the initial infection. At least now there's COVID clinics and there's a pathway. There's I hope, a pathway yeah. for healthcare to kind of evaluate patients. I think it's still an ongoing process, but at least it, there's some guidance. Yeah even though it's not great and it's basically born out of the experience of the people that are experiencing this. I think there'll probably be a lot of evidence that is forthcoming, but I'm sure for a lot of people, it'll be not especially effective because they've already been experiencing it for so long. Of course, the other thing we haven't talked about in some time is the inequitable distribution of the vaccine. It was a problem from the very beginning. It continues to be one now. A study was just released last week saying maybe we oughtn't to necessarily think about it just by disaggregated by race, but by income. It seems mm -hmm. that income is actually the more determinant factor. So you have plenty of African-American and Asian-American folks and Latinos who have gotten the vaccine who are upper income, but lower income communities still lack any sort of rate of vaccination that is going to protect that community or that neighborhood or the people who live there. What do we do now? How do we reach those communities? Is it the mobile clinics? Is it getting into community health clinics? Is it getting into the primary care physicians? What do we think is the way in? I think it's community health centers. It's clinicians keep the pharmacies stocked up, get rid of the appointments at pharmacies. And then like the county health departments are doing contracting with like Embry Health and others that go set up mobile clinics. There was a creative one that they did at a church a couple weekends ago in South Phoenix. So it's retail work. At the beginning, everything was just wholesale stuff. The State Farm mm. and all that, that was wholesale vaccination. And now that's played out. I mean, mm -hmm. they're doing 500 doses a day at the most at those big giant places. That's played out. It's retail stuff now. It's getting weekends. Like the county set up one in the swap meet. That's a great example of the swap meet at the old Greyhound racing place. That's an example. Meet people where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of people volunteered to go to those big mass vaccination sites in order to get this thing rolling. Shouldn't we be looking for the same type of effort now for lower income communities? Really people coming together to try and make this happen so that we can be in a position to say, yes, Arizona has become a place where we are close enough to herd immunity that we are keeping each other safe. Honestly, so, I, I think you got to contract this at this point. Yes, I mean, yeah, you got to contract yeah. it. Some, some, they're accountable. 
And there's no shortage of money. State Health Department has gotten a billion dollars with a B. Well, not just them. Through CDC, through the various funding things that came through, there's no shortage of money to pay contractors to get out and do these things. That's what I think you do rather than set up volunteers. In fact, I can tell you from ASU's experience doing the big sites that the minute that it was announced that anybody could get vaccine, the volunteers all disappeared. Because one of the benefits of volunteering was that you got vaccinated for volunteering. And as soon as it became available, I mean, they were really struggling. They had to hire people, basically. So Will's exactly right. That's the way to go now. Yeah. And I have to tell you at the beginning of all this, I mean, healthcare workers wanted everyone to be vaccinated, but it was not lost on many of us that they were asking you to volunteer your time, right? We just went through the pandemic. We're exhausted. And now you're asking us to volunteer our time to vaccinate people. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we ha- you had to do what you had to do at the beginning, but the time has come. I actually didn't yeah. know that. I thought the nurses were being paid. I mean, I just kept getting pounded with emails asking me to volunteer. So, wow. yeah. I assumed that everyone else was volunteering. Retrospective of the last three months, prospective of the next three months. What's the big thing that's on your mind going either way? Well, I think get ready for school. Get the adolescents vaccinated throughout the summer. Do the best you can with these contracted vendors that are going out to the community, places like Park and Swap, weekend clinics, church clinics, those sorts of things. Just press, press, press with the vaccines and then get the schools ready. So one good thing that came out just the other day is that CDC's got a whole bunch of money. I think it's $63 million coming to the state health department for interventions to improve in the public health workforce with a specific focus on COVID-19. And it carved out 20% of that, which is I think more than $10 million for schools school nurses, and resources to help schools get ready for the fall semester. That's what I immediately think about is schools. Then there's more information now. I feel like last year, my daughter is going to enter kindergarten, and it was all, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how this works, and we'll see how that works. And now it's more of, we know what works. Now let's do it. Kara, three months retrospective, three months prospective. What's on your mind? I think continued vaccination, and I hope people don't forget. We as humans, I think, have short memories, and we want to do what we want to do, and I hope people don't forget to wear masks and be cautious. We can't go back. Even if you're fully vaccinated, life is not the way it used to be yet because there are still our cases and there still are people dying, much less, and we're moving in the right direction, but this isn't over yet. So in three months, I hope we can say it's almost over, but it's not over yet. I think in the past three months, just comparing now to what would have been February, it's a great difference. And I think that people are getting more back to normal, but not yet completely normal. Josh, three months forward, three months back. I'm going to focus on the forward for the moment. So I think to build on what Kara just said, there are two pieces I want to talk about. One is it isn't over. It's not just about the ongoing potential of infection, but it's also going to be on the psyche of the population. I think when I go into stores and even though the signs are off in terms of having to wear masks and I see so many people still wearing them, I think there's going to be a sizable fraction of our population that's not going to be comfortable to take off their masks for a very long time. 
even though the science is all there, even though the, the case numbers are going to continue to drop, they're still going to be like, I think mentally people are still dealing with what happened last year. I mean, we're all looking at potential mortality numbers being much higher than we thought they were. And I think that that's going to affect our psyche. And I think a corollary of that that's coming in the next months is a lot of businesses are now struggling with how do they manage the future now? I mean, they've got a sizable fraction of their employees who got vaccinated because they were told to get vaccinated. And then they've got a fraction of people in their employ who are just not going to do it. They're just not going to do it. And do you make everybody continue to wear masks for this group of people who have decided they're never going to get vaccinated? So should they just say, you know what, everybody's had their shot, oh, quote unquote, their chance to get vaccinated. Sorry for that misuse of the term. They've all had their chance to get vaccinated. Do we just say, look, it's up to you now, be responsible or not be responsible. But the people who vaccinated are safe now. So I think a lot of people are trying to decide all that stuff. We actually now have more of an opportunity to think about what we've been through and where we're going. Each of you take a moment to think about what have we learned about ourselves and our communities and our society, both in terms of public health and in terms of community well-being and social health. Want to give it a go, Will? Under the general umbrella of what have we learned and what have we yet to learn, I think for people like Josh and the people in the academic world, we need to answer once and for all how effective was school closures at slowing the spread of this virus during those peaks. Answer that question. What was the return on investment, if you will, it's not an investment, the return on sacrifice for closing schools? Because we did a, a natural experiment where there were districts that went hybrid, districts that went in-person, and then districts that were virtual. A smart researcher can figure out how to tease out the count founders and answer that question, because it was a big, big thing. And it at least it answered that evidence question about one of the most invasive interventions, I think, that we used. I think it's a complicated question, though, because early in the pandemic, I think school closures probably had a huge impact because we didn't really know what worked and what didn't work. Later in the pandemic, when we understood how to do masking, we understood how to do spacing, we understood how the virus spread and how the virus didn't spread, the schools were actually one of the safer places to be. The schools were a structured environment where they really maintained the rules, whereas most of the kids who got infected during the school year were getting it from home, not from the schools. Even if they were in person. Yes. L later on, though, not early on, early yeah, yeah. on when we yeah. had no clue, but later on, I think the schools became a place of refuge. That's what I'd like to have answered is a school with intervention compared to a school closure. What was the value to that? But it's complicated because of the teachers. Yes. Because part of it was an occupational health reason to close. But I still want to answer the question set the teachers aside for a second. If you had a school that had the right kind of mitigation in place and compared that to a school that closed, what was the difference in community spread? However, you're missing one key piece of data because you don't have the sequencing of each infection. So three kids could show up to the same classroom and it looks like they gave it to each other, but it turns out they got it somewhere else and just walked into the same classroom. You will never know that because we did not sequence our tests. Yeah. Yeah. There's smart people out there in academia that can, I hope, are working on funding sources to answer this really important question. The pandemic plan that was written in 2006 specifically focused on the fact that schools would be that super spreading event because 
there is no greater physical proximity in our communities than in our schools. That was for pandemic influenza, where the biggest risk was kids. Remember, people over 50 were at low risk during H1N1 for having complications. So this was upside down. Anecdotally, I can say that there, there have been a number of cases in, for example, my daughter's school. To my knowledge, none of the neighbors of those students ever got infected from the student. Having said that, though, what was interesting is recently, and I know of this from several stories, kids in the middle schools are lately getting sick, but it's not COVID. They're all getting fatigue and they're bedridden or they're at least staying home. My daughter got sick and she was tested twice for COVID because I couldn't believe it wasn't COVID, but it wasn't. We've made it back to my original question. What is going on with our social health? Because it does seem like that's happening. People are falling off the cliff, having been in this highly reactive, highly defensive highly protective mode, things have eased up a little bit, and you do find some people who are falling ill. Or the spread is different. Maybe it's more by fomite and less by air, and so the masks aren't doing the job. It's because they're touching the doorknobs and itching their eyes or picking their nose. To me, it's like when your kid first starts daycare or school. My kids went to daycare when they were 18 months old, and they just get sick and sick and sick oh all God, the time, yeah. right? Over <laughs> yeah, and over and over. Right, and it's like right. their body's like... Maybe people have lost to some degree, some immunity to some of the more common things that we experience as well. To go to the other social aspect that John was just referring to is the mental health. We were talking about do schools spread COVID, but that's also I mean, if you want to do a full evaluation of it, you'd have to account for other things like the increase in child abuse and the kids that didn't get three square meals a day because they couldn't get to the food at school and all these other factors. And that's excluding all the depression and anxiety disorders that are from the pandemic and that will continue as we were talking about. In my mind, I can't even imagine walking into a store without a mask. I'm not a particularly anxious person, but that would make me anxious. I'm, I'm probably going to be holding on a lot longer than other people just because it gives me comfort. Josh, can you make a call down the hall at Biodesign and ask for a return on sacrifice model? <laughs> Multivariate, please. I just made that yeah. up because return on investment yeah. didn't sound right. But no. yeah, it's we sacrificed all this. And what did mm -hmm. we get? That's the question. Yes. Yeah. As a guy who's been in public health for longer than you want to admit, what do you think? I, well, I don't know. I just want smart people to figure it out. <laughs> no, it could be done, though. There's really good epidemiologists who know how to, like, control and do all kind of statistics and things. And there's pretty good data, not to sequencing, John, like you were talking about. But you could find the right place to compare, to have a control and on this natural experiment where you have a jurisdiction somewhere in the U.S. that has great data and really good contact tracing and schools that shut down and schools that didn't and compare what happened. I don't know that it's going to be an Arizona kind of mm -hmm. analysis, but somewhere in the U.S. there's the perfect data set to answer this question. Well, there certainly are already papers looking at the effect of school shutdowns, but as we were commenting earlier, they, it really does depend on when. Because right. it's a moving target and how they manage those schools and what they did in those schools and what kind of testing was available and all that stuff varied. And as you pointed out, it can vary classroom to classroom, depending on how much the teachers adhered to it. So if there's any one thing 
that I can think of that would have been great to have gotten better. It would have been the messaging, the framing, and how the science was presented from beginning to end of this pandemic. I mean, at the beginning, the mess of what's going on, what you need to do, I think the the messaging, if that's a, a better way of putting it. I mean, no one understood anything. And if there were clearer guidelines and people could put faith in the system, it might've been different, but the message was very, very garbled. And I think a lot of people lost faith in the system and kind of felt like they had to figure it out on their own. This has probably never happened before, Will, at least not a hundred years, where people expected authorities to absolutely know what to do, but that just wasn't possible early on. And it seems like that was the very first issue, was not being able to say at the beginning, look, we don't know entirely what's going on, but we do know the following things, and this is why you should do this. Instead, it was always a position of, yes, we know, and it's going to not be this, it's going to be that. That turned out not to be true. And then on and on and on in a cascading fashion until we got probably four or five months into this, at least. Yeah, that's science, isn't it? It is, but the hardest thing is matching the data and the science to a story that people can believe in. Yeah. And if you don't have both, things tend to fall apart because then people start to put their own application of story onto the science. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think it's isolated to this, but I've listened to some of the podcasts and I've read some of the books about the 1918 pandemic and it mm-hmm. had similar problems. You oh, know, it yep. started, I think, at a military base and and the higher up people in the government knew, but they didn't want to panic or something to that effect. So they didn't say anything. So it's a very, unfortunately, it sounds like we almost recreated what we previously had done. Mm. So I often think that part of this is that just Americans just are who they are. With some exceptions, it's hard to get Americans all on the same page. 9-11 was one of the few examples of most Americans getting kind of on the same page with something. I'm not talking about the war in Iraq, but the rest of that. There are moments when it didn't happen with this. At the beginning, I thought maybe it's called a rally around the flag effect. I thought early on, maybe that might happen, but it didn't happen at all. Part of it's the personality of Americans. Part of it is the leadership that we had at the national level and the president's office in the White House. Part of it is our republic is set up in a way to diffuse power and influence, which keeps us safe from tyranny, but also slows down a response because you have all this, you have a president saying one thing, 50, 56, I think, different governors, you have to include Guam and stuff, (laughs) are saying different things. State legislators that are pontificating saying certain things, health directors saying certain things, former health directors (laughs) saying certain (laughs) things. And so you have this jumbled group of people all pontificating and not being shy about it, including us on this podcast this last 15 months. And so welcome to America. The Republic works pretty good in many ways and in emergencies doesn't work as well as compared to some other countries. Although you think about Japan, I don't know if any if either of you have been on sabbatical in Japan. I, I talked to an academic who spent some time there and he says people are on kind of the same page there. There's not this dissonance that we have in this country, but Japan's not doing very well. Their bureaucracy is what destroyed their response. Right, right. I mean, they managed to keep infection rates down, but now they're what, 2% vaccinated? They can't get people vaccinated because they have the FDA that's 
on steroids wringing their hands. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Kara. And thank you, Josh. As Will noted, welcome to America Indeed. The pandemic is teaching us that our strengths can be our weaknesses and vice versa. Over these past 16 months, what started as a distant virus turned into an event that upended all of our lives. It's going to take time to make sense of it all. The medical data, the long COVID effects, the behavioral and social health impacts, and the community impacts. Almost like an earthquake, the fractures have been sudden and surprising. The aftershocks are still being felt, and the pandemic rebuilding process is really just beginning. And all that sounds like the pandemic existed in a vacuum, which it most certainly did not. The Vitalist Spark is working to share the stories and insights regarding multiple aspects of community health and well-being, which means you can check out our back catalog of episodes focused on redistricting, the opioid crisis, affordable housing, food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and open spaces, and more. There is a lot to listen to, featuring guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.